Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. If he ever pays you for something and you owe him change, give it all to him in nickels and dimes. He's Ben Baldanza, a former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And if Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is ever brought back on air and you get on and get a question about airlines, there'd be no better phone a friend than Seth Kaplan, (laughs) NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Yeah, just call me any hour of the day or night. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about whether on-time performance is silly or well at least whether the usual measure of on-time performance is silly (laughs) we'll listen to a real customer complaint against an airline accused of a heist we'll tell you what the airline allegedly stole in our finer wine segment and we'll take a question and a correction yeah i know you thought we didn't make mistakes on airline confidential but one (laughs) alert listener caught one (laughs) First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Yeah, Ben, United Airlines announced Oscar Munoz will step down as its CEO in May of 2020. He'll become chairman of the board. The airline's current president, Scott Kirby, will become CEO. The news itself wasn't a shock. Everybody expected this to happen sooner or later. We just didn't know when. Scott Kirby's not a household name outside the industry, but generally has a, a great reputation within the industry. And in fact, United over the past few years, while he's been there helping Oscar Munoz run the airline, has become not only a more profitable airline, but also a more reliable one. Uh, generally an airline that is happy investors, but also happier customers. And from what I can tell, a lot of happier employees too, at least compared to where it was. Uh, but Ben, first I want to ask you, at a giant airline, you know, 80,000 employees or whatever United has, How much does it really matter to the average passenger or employee who the CEO is? Well, it probably matters more to the employees than the customers, to be fair, because customers don't typically interact directly with any of the senior management of an airline. But employees are impacted by the policies, strategy, direction, tone, and everything of the management team. So I think it's more of an employee issue investors, the one group you didn't mention, care a lot about this role, obviously, because the role that a CEO and by extension, the management team thinks about serving the investor community affects the way the stock performs. Now, in this particular case, I think this is looks to be like it's going to be a very well-managed transition. Scott Kirby, as you say, may not be well that, that well-known outside the industry. As you know, he was the number two to Doug Parker at American Airlines for many years until he jumped ship and went to United to work as number two behind Oscar Munoz. Scott, in many ways, is the Dick Cheney of the airline industry. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the very smart, often ruthless sort of number two who's not always in the public eye but is actually directing a lot of the strategy behind the airlines he's worked out he's worked at I mean and so I think he will uh, he'll do very well with this airline and I think investors will respond well to this and customers won't see a big change other than hopefully the airline continuing to improve the way it has been 
Yeah, and I think he's conscious of of that of how of his perception that you know brilliant guy, but maybe not soft enough, and 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 he's going to be in that role now uh, that he's never been in before. As you said, uh, nobody questions his ability, his knowledge. He has as much of that as anybody. But now, when something goes wrong, and it will go wrong someday because this is the airline industry. Instead of Doug Parker before or Oscar Munoz being the one out there, you know, describing, uh, you know, talking about Dr. Dow getting dragged off the plane or whatever it is, that'll now be Scott's job. You know, it's, it's not too often that a CEO really gets to go out on top, but still leave the next person something to work with. Uh, just choose that perfect timing. That's kind of what happened at Delta. Richard Anderson left the airline in great shape. And I remember Ed Bastian told me at the time, the current CEO, that he appreciated that Richard left him an airline that was doing well, but that still had more opportunities. It wasn't as if Richard left right before something really bad was going to happen. For now, anyway, that seems kind of like what's happening at United. Well, Seth, is there any airline that doesn't have things it needs to work on? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so it would almost be impossible to leave and leave your successor with nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, not in this, not in this kind of industry. But as Richard left uh, Ed Bastion with a really good airline, and Ed's made it better. Um, and that happened earlier, for example, when Gordon Bethune left um, Continental yes. and Larry Kellner took over, and yep. that was a similar situation. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what's happening here at United. United's made nice improvements over the last couple of years. And while Oscar has been the face of the airline, my analogy to the former vice president, I think, <laughs> is accurate in that I think Scott had a lot to do with a lot of those changes. And, um, and so I think he will be a natural stepping into this role. Yeah, you've, of course, been through CEO transitions before, both working at lower levels when the CEO changed at an airline and then as the guy taking over an airline and then later handing the reins to the next guy. Now, first, I want to ask you, Ben, at Spirit, obviously, the, the, the airline that you ran for many years, when you left, people all had their own theories about what had happened. And of course, you weren't at the time able to maybe tell the whole story. Let me tell you what my impression was. And you can tell me if I'm if I'm how close I was uh, to being correct. I know that by the time you left, you had moved your family to Washington and, and, and you were kind of commuting down to work. And that's a heck of a job <laughs> to have to, to, have to commute yeah. a thousand miles uh, too. And, and of course, Spirit also was off its highs in, in terms of performance. It, it was still uh, doing well compared to most airlines in the world, probably one of the top you know, 10 operating profit margins or, or, or net margins of any airline in the world. But by its own standards, things had gotten tougher it was when fuel prices had fallen. Uh, other airline fares had kind of gotten down towards spirit levels. Spirit had a harder time getting people to fly it just because it was cheap and all of that was happening. And, and so my impression was that whereas when spirit was at the very top, you know, nobody could say anything about about the, the CEO living a thousand miles away, that maybe then that just got tougher as the challenge grew and you had to make a choice. And if you weren't going to move back to Fort Lauderdale, you had to leave the airline. Is is there any truth to any of that? And, and what more was there to it? That's certainly a reasonable insight from sort of the facts known. It's not exactly that, though, only in that I made the decision to leave and move my family to Washington a couple of years earlier and spoke to my board about it. And in fact, adding Bob Fanaro, who eventually replaced me to our board, was in part to create sort of the hit by a bus issue, you know, of of succession. 
And so, and, 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 and just to clarify, when moving, you say when you say hit by the bus, the what's also called key man risk. What what happens? Yes, that's happens right. Ben, who takes over all of a sudden? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, we moved our family here. Our son, who we who had been born in Florida, was enrolled had enrolled in a school in the fall of 2015 here. We had built a house here and things like that. So the commute was difficult for both the airline and me personally. And the real issue is when was Bob ready to take over as CEO? And since that was not known, and since it wasn't known exactly that it was going to be Bob two years earlier when I told the board, let's manage this transition, it was just better to sort of let it happen when it was going to happen. And so in 2016, when everything was worked out for Bob to take over, I was happy to sort of step away and let Bob, again, hopefully most people would think like Ed Bastian or like Scott Kirby's in now, leave an airline that was in pretty good shape but needed things to be done. And Bob did a lot of good things with Spirit. And now Ted Christie's running the airline and is also doing great things. Yeah, and and then can you take us inside, maybe describe something that would surprise the rest of us who haven't been there when something like this happens, when there's a CEO change, what, whether it's a relatively smooth and expected one or, or something more tumultuous, something other people wouldn't know about what happens? Well, in general, um, there's usually some mitigating, or I should say some event. Like if you go earlier to United, when Jeff Smizek left and Oscar Munoz replaced him, Oscar Munoz was on the board of United at that time. If you remember, that was following that very uncomfortable exchange about the chairman's flight from Newark to South Carolina that yeah. that at least allegedly Continental put the flight in only as a political favor to the head of the New York Port Authority in order to gain favor with that government agency. And that just looked very bad for United and rightly or wrongly, Jeff Smizek was tagged as the guy who let that happen. And that became sort of the the event that sort of led. Now, if you look at United's performance beforehand, there were reasons for the board to want to possibly make a change before that. But that became an event that made it all, you know, tie up with a bow time to change. Right. And uh, when you look at other CEO changes in all industries, but in the airline industry, too, this is an industry that doesn't have a lot of turnover, at least recently. Right. I remember when I went to work for Continental in the mid-1990s, one of the jokes was the airline had 10 CEOs in 10 years. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so that was a revolving door up to that point. But in most cases, you know, if you look at Doug Parker at American or, or Richard Anderson to Ed Bastian or what's happened at United or – Herb Keller to Gary Kelly, yeah. many, many years yeah. at Southwest, right? You, There's been a lot of stability in the senior suites in the airlines. And that, I think, is is recognizes the fact that really since 2012, 2013, the industry has been a profitable industry. The consolidation that brought eight large carriers into four huge carriers made all the airlines more stable. It made fares a little higher and it made cities that used to be hubs like Pittsburgh and Cincinnati and Memphis not so happy. But it also created more economic stability for the industry. And the reward of that to some extent is more stability that things aren't going that wrong. So unless there's a massive, you know, operational meltdown or ethical issue or things like that, I wouldn't expect to see abrupt kind of changes in the industry over time 
the needs for companies change. The type of the CEO a company might need at point A is different than they might need at point B. So there will be change and people's lives change and things like that. But I don't think that the change for change sake is good for this industry. And I don't think you'll see it happen. Yeah. You mentioned cities that that, that suffered. One ancillary benefit of what the Scott Kirby has been doing at, at United is that somewhat surprisingly, after almost two decades of small and medium-sized cities losing service, United focused on building back domestic service to feed its hubs, to feed its global network. And beneficiaries of that have been all kinds of small and medium-sized cities that it almost seemed like it was just this kind of inexorable decline in traffic. And suddenly there was a lot more service there. So they've been glad. And it's not all of them, but uh, but a lot of those kinds of cities suddenly uh, were able to, to turn that tide as well. Well, that's right. But even in that case, they're now getting service to a United Hub as opposed to maybe lots of nonstop service. There was a time I remember uh, at Cleveland, in Cleveland, if you looked at the Wikipedia page on Cleveland, one of the things it said is Cleveland has the designation of as being the only city to be de-hubbed twice by the same airline. <laughs> because, <laughs> because United had closed it early as a hub and then Continental Airlines re- reestablished a hub at Cleveland. When Continental and United merged, then the hub United was closed again. again. So United twice closed the hub at Cleveland. I'm sure Scott is doing a good job trying to connect Cleveland into Newark and Chicago and other strong United points to make sure that people in Cleveland can get good service on United. <laughs> yeah, and, and he probably isn't going to start a third hub in Cleveland. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hawaiian Airlines, Ben, was once again the most punctual U.S. airline in the most recent month for figures. That was November, according to new OAG figures. It was followed closely by Delta and then Spirit. JetBlue was last in punctuality among major U.S. airlines. Now, in terms of cancellations, flights that never went anywhere, JetBlue was actually among the best with a cancellation rate of just 0.1%, tying Hawaiian. Delta was excellent too with 0.2%. Southwest, Alaska, and United all canceled at least a full 1% of their flights. So so many times as, as many as those others I mentioned. American, we should point out, had considerably better figures than it has had most of the year. Now, Ben, that's just one one month of data, of course, influenced by weather conditions in certain places. But back to punctuality, you were saying to me earlier, you have some issues with this kind of data. That's right, Seth. I'm not a fan of the way the Department of Transportation measures airline reliability with on time. Let me ask you, is a 15 minute delay in your flight to you the same as a four hour delay on a flight? No. No, all right. But the DOT says, but the DOT essentially says that's the same thing. You're either late or you're not. And they make no distinction between a delay that really messes up your day and your trip versus a little inconvenience of a few minutes late. Um, If you took an airline, for example, where every one of their flights were exactly 15 minutes late, they would have a 0% on time. And yet most customers would probably think of that airline as fairly reliable if, in fact, you were 15 minutes late every time you flew. Compare that to an airline that is exactly on time 90% of the time. But when they're late 10% of the time, they're late five hours. Right? I mean, would you take that? Over the airline is 15 minutes late every time? Probably not, but that airline would be 90% on time. So the metric itself 
is too simplistic for what customers really feel. It measures the the on-time of the airplanes, not of what the customer sees. If the customer is connecting, a delay may make them miss their connection or they may still make their connection. So they may make the final... Their final destination, fine, even if the first flight is delayed, or they may miss it. That's much more relevant as to whether or not either of the two flights were within 14 minutes or not. So I think it's good that we measure reliability of airlines. Airlines should measure reliability, but the length of delay is important in that. And the fact that what this measurement does is it only measures against what the airline says in the first place. And what that does is it encourages airlines to say flights take longer than they do so that they look good on this metric. And what's the effect of that, Seth? The effect is that the prices go up because most airlines, for example, pay their crews based on the actual flight time or the schedule time, whichever is greater. So if it really takes two hours and 20 minutes to fly from Florida to New York, but you schedule it for three hours, you might be paying the cruise for three hours, even though the flight doesn't take that long. It also takes that plane out of service in a sense, doesn't allow you to schedule it till after it's scheduled arrival, of course. So it reduces the amount of hours in the day you can fly, which means that lower utilization results in higher fares as well. So it's a crazy thing to say that a metric makes fares higher, but this one does because every airline has a real compulsion to not be last in this. And the easiest way not to be last is just say the flights take longer than they really do. And yet that raises everybody's fares. So, so just to explain this to people who don't understand, it, it, it's often called padding the block times. The block time is what's scheduled. I think everybody knows you know, when you see a flight scheduled. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have. You and I both live in in Washington. Uh, I fly often to South Florida, often Fort Lauderdale. That's where our families are. Uh, in the case of, of my wife and I, and uh, you know, sometimes that flight will take as little as a little less than two hours, but it's generally scheduled for something like two and a half hours. That that two and a half hours, the block time, and that's not regulated. That's the airline schedules it. Uh, and so the airline, what you're saying, can be more on time or less on time just by based on what it's scheduled. Now, why wouldn't it just schedule four hours and be all be on time all the time? Well, then that's what you said because if they schedule it for four hours, then they can't they can't <laughs> use the airplane again until four and a half hours later, say. So so that sort of polices itself, but they still can manipulate the rating. On top of that, there's the obvious issue that would I say Hawaiian is the most reliable airline. I mean, no offense to Hawaiian, but I think if other airlines had their principal hub in Honolulu instead of <laughs> JFK or O'Hare or some of the other places where airlines have have hubs, uh, there there would be that issue. I remember a few years ago, Nate Silver, the 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 analyst who has the the five thirty eight site and does a lot of political analysis, but other stuff too, did, did a pretty good job. What looked to me anyway like a pretty good job of sort of controlling for that and looking at airlines in uh, overlapping markets and saying, okay, what if they all you know operated the same flights as opposed to one having having much easier conditions and 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 it was interesting and some of the airlines that come up at the top i think delta still did very well for example but it did change uh somewhat didn't give hawaiian as much credit as as it tends to get so ben what a different uh, just thinking about this would a better measure be instead of allowing the block time to 
to do what you described to sort of game the system to just look at overlapping markets and maybe say how long on average does it take the airline to get somewhere from the scheduled departure time and just sort of control for all that you see what i'm saying so it wouldn't matter if if, if united schedules a flight from chicago to miami to be longer than american or vice versa it, just how long does it take them from the scheduled departure time to complete the same flight would 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 that take care of it and, and then and then they could still pad the block times but they would suffer you know just in terms of what you described before economically they wouldn't get credit for being on time more that's an interesting way to do it it sounds a little complicated because yeah. you'd have to go route by route and that's hard to sort of put in a soundbite of american beat United this month for reliability. You'd have to say in this particular market, American did better than United. I think another way to think about it, Seth, might be just look at the average delay. It would be nice to know that if I fly airline X, my average delay is 18 minutes. Whereas if I fly airline Y, my average delay is 24 minutes. That might tell me something different. Or maybe maybe look at average delay and uh, percentage of flights delayed more than an hour. Something like that. So you're delayed an average of 18 minutes and you got a 5% chance of being delayed over an hour versus delayed 25 minutes, but only a 1% chance of being delayed over an hour. I think that's better information for a consumer than just 14 or minutes. Yeah, it would, you'd still have the block time issue in that case, but at least, right, you'd know if you have this airline that's just sort of wildly inconsistent versus one that's that's consistently a, a, a meaningless amount of time late. What you'd know then, again, today padding the block is all about getting right. within 14, right? It's getting called on time. In that case, it would sort of police the padding a block in a sense, in the sense that it's just how late do I get there compared to when you said yeah, you were going to yeah, get me exactly. It's not against some arbitrary metric, right? Where everybody's just minutes. gunning for 14 minutes. That does make sense. Yeah. Right. Well, now at cruise altitude here on airlines confidential, Ben, it's time to take a question from a, a listener. It's that plus a complaint during fine or wine questions, comments, concerns. We'll have them all next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, this week's question is from Anne in what I think is pronounced Taborg, New York. Ben, I, I looked it up it's a, uh, on a map. It looks like it's near Syracuse. Uh, you're, you're the upstate New York expert. Is that how, is it, is it Taborg? It's Taborg and I was born in Taborg. <laughs> okay. So you, so you have heard of it. Uh, okay. But I, but I don't remember an Anne, although I'm sure there must've been several. You know, Anne submitted her question on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Anne asks, and I am not making this up. I'm reading this. You, you saw the email too. This is exactly what it says. It says, hi, I love your show, especially Seth. Ooh. My question is, why do airline planes have such small tires? <laughs> now, first of all, Ben, I double checked. It, it's not from my mother's email address. <laughs> 
We know it's not from my wife's email address because if she listened to this podcast at all, it'd be to hear what you have to say, not me. It's clearly <laughs> so, from a secret so, admirer, Seth. Yeah, and, and I don't know what to say other than I, I will just accept that as a compliment on behalf of people everywhere who have no idea what they're talking about but sound like we do. So uh, so thank you, Anne. And, and so, so to the guy who actually knows something, Ben, why, why do airline planes have such small tires? And I verified, by the way, I looked it up, uh, at least in terms of diameter, it's true. I wanted to make sure it wasn't just like a perception thing, but uh, you know, the diameter of a of a tire on a seven thirty seven is like twenty seven inches, which is you know, which is smaller than the tires on some trucks, for example. Yeah, that, that's right. Well, I think there's a couple issues. Um, tires on airplanes are built differently than tires in cars. They have a lot more material in them. They're made to inflate at much higher pressures and not blow. And the and the proof of that is the incidence of a tire blowing on a landing is almost almost never happens. I mean, I'm sure it has happened, but you you almost never you never hear about it. Um, yeah. I think there's a couple issues here. You mentioned the perception issue and airplanes are really large things. So you put a tire that would look even a little big on a truck or something, and you put it on that large a body, it's going to look even smaller than it actually is. So I think there is a relative size of the tire versus size of the thing it's supporting that just makes the visual look tiny. So that's probably what Anne's seen to some extent. But there's also the reality that the tires are built completely different. They're built not to blow. They're built to withstand the pressures of the landing of the aircraft. And most airplanes have a few more tires than a car. An A320, for example, has six tires, not four, because yeah. it's got two under each wing and one of the front is balanced. And so it, it or two under the front, I mean, and so it, it, it works out. The tires are just different. They're spec different. The regulations require they be different. They don't have to be bigger to be stronger. And that's really the issue. Yeah. Well, do you have a question for us? Uh, you can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. That's 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, questions, plural, at airlinesplural.confidential.com, or do what Ann did. Jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website, and you'll see a form on, on there. It's at the bottom left of the site to submit your question. Next, we have John from Dallas. John. Hey, guys. This is John from Dallas, and not a question per se, but more of a clarification from the last episode regarding the LaGuardia perimeter rule and how it applies to Denver. And while some attribute the exemption to Congress deal making or certain airlines demanding the service, even though Denver is beyond the 1500 mile rule from LaGuardia, the truth is that Denver LaGuardia was flying before the perimeter rule was implemented and was thus granted a grandfather exemption. So it will continue to fly for the time being. Anyway, just wanted to provide that context. Love the show. Thanks guys. Hmm, that's interesting okay. from John, huh? Yeah, so, yeah, and and so and so, uh, what he's saying, you know, the information we gave in terms of where the exceptions are that that was correct. Uh, Denver is the only place sort of beyond what would be the perimeter at LaGuardia, but. But it's not an exemption in the same sense, and you can tell John knows what he's talking about, and, and we verified it. Yeah, whereas whereas at at national, the rule was there first, and then and then there have been these exemptions at LaGuardia. It's that when the rule started, and this dates back to when they opened what's now JFK. It was first called Idlewild, and they wanted to encourage the 
big flights to be out there. Uh, the, the perimeter was fixed at 1,500 miles, and there are no exemptions to that, but they grandfathered uh, Denver in. And, you know, John calls from Dallas, Ben. If we were doing this show 10 or 15 years ago, there would have been a third airport we probably would have talked about. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, in Love Field, I assume you mean. Yeah, exactly. They uh, the, the the smaller airport in Dallas, Love Field. Uh, that was very much a political thing. It dated back to the beginning of Southwest and, and, and uh, the move to Dallas, Fort Worth International, the larger airport by other airlines. But for many years, you weren't allowed to fly uh, first outside of Texas and then only to neighboring states. And Southwest fought to change that. A lot of other people fought to <laughs> to keep it as it was to sort of contain Southwest. And then uh, finally, there was this this grand agreement uh, to to allow more flying. You can fly any anywhere you want in the country from Dallas Love Field, but you still can't fly internationally. And they did have to agree to reduce the total number of, of gates there. Right. And, and, you know, John, John, I don't know if he's a lawyer or not, but he could certainly play one on TV if he's not. <laughs> because what, while his facts are exactly right, and I really appreciate the fact that he listens to us and sent in that clarification because he's right. It is a bit splitting hairs in a way. A grandfather, a grandfathering rule is a, is in a sense an ex, an exemption. We're exempting you from having to follow the rule because you're grandfathered into it. But it's not an exemption in the way DCA slots have been exempted to add service to Phoenix and Seattle and places like that. So he's exactly right. It's the it's a it's a language issue that's interesting. I find here though, and I guess the major point is that there aren't going to be other exemptions. Whereas at national, periodically you'll hear about a new flight to somewhere uh, farther away. At LaGuardia, that's not going to happen. There, there's just that one exception uh, in this case because of their grandfathering, and 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 that's it. They don't. They I don't. Know. I don't know that we can say it's never going to happen. Sure, sure, sure. There, but there, today, there's certainly, there's certainly been more chatter about. Um, efforts to remove the perimeter rule altogether at LaGuardia. Definitely. I mean, that's that's not law. That's not a, pro- a formal proposal. But there's been more talk about that than anything else in terms of the perimeter rule at LaGuardia. And that too is is political because the airlines that have a larger presence at LaGuardia are more interested in doing that, whereas those that uh, count more on using JFK or Newark uh, are, are are happy to have the LaGuardia airlines more constrained by, you know, Seth, by that role. Um, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but my sense has always been that slots plus perimeter rules is a bit redundant. The slots control how many flights a day happen at the airport. The perimeter rule determines how far you fly. So if you're going to limit the number of flights that fly, do you really care whether the plane's going to Florida or to Los Angeles? It doesn't create any more noise on takeoff for a, you know, that one flight versus yeah. the other or anything. I could see a perimeter rule where there are no slots to limit how far you can fly, like the Love Field case had been for many years, or slots but no perimeter rule because if you're going to if you want to fly to LA you have to fly one fewer flight to Florida or wherever sure. right, to make that happen it just seems a bit redundant to have both slots and perimeter rule what do you think 
Yeah, and the most ridiculous seeming example of all is one that people don't think a lot about, and at least in most of the country, there's an airport, Long Beach, California, where there was this big controversy about allowing international flights from there. And and the neighbors, I guess this wasn't ridiculous to them, the people who live nearby fought uh, against the idea of allowing international flights. And all it would be is you know flights to Mexico and that sort of thing. But, but, it, but it, it got all wrapped up and then talks about noise and this and that and 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 a flight i mean you can feel however you want about the about flights to mexico but a flight to you know tijuana doesn't sound any different (laughs) than a flight to to seattle from from long beach uh california well Uh, as tip o'neill famously said all politics is local right that's right <laughs> well, uh, beginning our initial descent now on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. And Ben, you have a complaint. This one is from Gerard or Gerhard. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I hope I didn't mess it up too much. I would guess Gerhard. Yeah, G-E-R-H-A-R. That's what I would say. Yep. All right. So Gerhard complained about American Airlines and he writes, I earned 19,900 miles last year. And when I tried to use them for a trip, I discovered that the miles had expired. Then they offered me to buy back the miles they had figuratively stole from me for $225. This is worse than highway robbery. How can anyone trust an airline that's so desperate to make profits that they come up with policies that amount to cheating their own customers? A simple email to customer whose miles are about to expire would be an honest move, but no, they enjoy setting traps. And when the customer falls into the trap, they come live and to sell you back what they stole you. Yeah, interesting here. Uh, And and different airlines have different policies. Uh, 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 Americans' policy is that your miles expire after 18 months if you have no activity. Uh, so you just have to do something with them. You, I mean, you could just earn a mile if it's buying a cup of coffee on a credit card or, or with their sort of dining rewards thing. Uh, but if you do nothing, your miles go away. Delta miles never expire. United miles now, I believe, never expire. JetBlue miles never expire. On the other end of the spectrum, Spirit miles expire really quickly, like in months if, if, if you don't have activity. So all airlines do it differently. I will say in Americans' defense that they actually happened to just have this experience a few weeks ago. Uh, They actually called my wife. I mean, like a live agent on the phone called her to say that she hadn't had any activity and that her miles was over 50,000 miles would expire in three days if she didn't do something. And that actually, we happened to need a flight and we just used the miles to to book a flight, but we also could have done anything else that created even just one miles uh, worth of of activity. So, you know, I appreciated that, Uh, but the rule does exist and they probably didn't call Gerhard, you know? So, so, um, so, so what do you think, Ben? What do you think about the rules and what do you think about Gerhard's complaint, whether the complaint is fine or is he whining? I may be conflicted from answering this, Seth, because I had an issue with my American Airlines credit card where they canceled my credit card for inactivity and had never contacted me saying, why don't you go charge a pack of gum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they reinstated the card, however, and didn't charge me $225. But um, <laughs> but the, um, the issue here that isn't clear from the data is when did Gerhard earn his 19,900 miles? And if they were earned many years before, and then he decided to use them without having kept up to date on the policies of the program and things like that, I would maybe lean toward he should have been a little better informed as a customer. That said, I do think American or any airline has responsibility and 
in fact, incentive to contact customers who have miles that are close to expiring and say, hey, why don't you spend some more money with me? Why don't you show me some more love and buy another ticket or charge something on your affinity credit card or do something to show me that you still are loyal to me? And they should do that long before. I take some trips on Emirates now for another business venture and I can go to my Emirates account and it tells me exactly how many, when my miles will expire and it sends me warnings as to when they might. And not only that, but click here to show how you can use these miles now, right? And it makes it easy for you to not run out. So I think there are examples out there of airlines that that communicate with their customers well. American clearly has some liability here for not keeping Gerhard up to date on the program he was really in. I get the intuition from this, although I don't know factually, that he had earned these miles maybe years before and wasn't really a current user of the airline, maybe just noticed, hey, I got all these miles, maybe I can take them someplace, because they don't expire really quickly. Right. And then he was surprised that he had lost the value of them. Yeah. And basically, it falls into, just for for the benefit of anybody who hasn't realized this, there there are kind of three different broad policies, right? Either you have miles that never expire, and I should mention, I think, Southwest recently became the latest airline to do that. And these airlines have just found, you know what, it's just better to keep people engaged, right? They, if somebody has just a few miles and they ever expire, then maybe they'll do other profitable things with, with the airline. And I guess they just don't want to deal with situations like this. I think Delta was the first major one to go that route. And now, now you have several do. Then you have airlines where the miles themselves won't expire as long as you have some kind of activity over a certain period of time. It could be 18 months, which is American's case. It could be 24 months, but you just have to do something. And then your miles could be 20 years old, the miles themselves, but you just have, uh, have to have some kind of activity. And then you have the airlines where the miles themselves expire kind of on a rolling basis, you know, where a mile that you earn today will expire 12 months from now or 24 months from now or whatever it is. So if you have a lot of miles, you do just want to take a look in your account. It's usually there somewhere and uh, just put a note on your calendar. You, you know, don't rely on the airline to contact you. They should, uh, but but just put a note on your calendar a week before the miles are due to expire to do something, whatever it is that you have to do uh, by by then. Well, you know, Seth, and for the CPAs who may be listening, the certified public accountants, <laughs> there is a real financial issue here too. A mile that is out there that could be redeemed has to be accounted for by the airline as a liability that has to be relieved at some point. So the reason that most airlines have decided to let the miles expire at some point is just like a check that people used to use that you would send out and never got cashed, at some point you've got to say, that's never going to get cashed or this mile's never going to get used. So I'm going to take it off my books because it becomes a financial liability for the airlines to keep it there also. So they're not just being mean to customers by saying the miles expire. They have sort of a financial motivation through the accounting laws to make that happen. Right. So when those airlines that never allow miles to expire, uh, give you a mile, you know, Delta has that mile as a liability. It's like they loaned you something on their balance sheet forever, and you know, obviously they've decided that that's okay. But but it is it is something that they that they have to consider. Now that makes perfect sense. Well, here we are now, Ben, on final approach that does it for airlines confidential this week. Please 
Fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions or your complaints or corrections or clarifications, anything at 305. Thank you, John. Three, maybe, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that. Right? 305-379-7429. Just imagine. Or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.